I want to play a game with you this morning. Imagine, if you would, that you are going to go on vacation. <laughs> I know. Imagine, if you would, where you would go. All right? You get to go on vacation. You get to choose a place where you're going. And you get to go for a lengthy amount of time. In fact, you're probably going to get to go for years. In fact, you may not come back. Now imagine, if you will, that you don't have to take your kids with you. I know, don't, don't get too excited about this. I know for all of us, we would say, well, that's, you know, vacation sounds good, but I want to come back to my kids. I would feel exactly the same way. But imagine if you had to go on vacation, you had to go away, and you could not take your kids with you. What would be the first thing that would come to mind that you need to do in your preparations to leave? Wouldn't the first thing that comes to mind be, I better find somebody trustworthy to watch over my kids? And wouldn't you be very, very careful in who you choose to watch your kids? Now, if you don't have kids, you can still identify with this. Imagine, if you will, that you're going away for a long time and you have to leave somebody that you really care about or something like a dog or a cat. Let's throw that into that category as well. You would be very careful to choose just the right person to make sure that the loved, these little loved creatures that you have would be watched over and taken care of. Now let me make this a little harder on you. Imagine, if you will, that you know while you're gone your kids would have to move from one location to another. In fact, you don't really know where they're going to move to. And imagine, if you will, that the people that you choose to watch over them are going to have to both strategize and coordinate and carry out this move and take these kids to places you may never find out about. On top of that, what if you knew that wherever they went, they are going to be under some sort of pressure? that they're going into a culture that is going to be very oppressive to them. And as they grow while you're gone, they are going to be under some serious stress. It might even be dangerous for them, wherever they end up going. Imagine, if you will, you had to do that with your precious little ones. Wouldn't you be very careful to make sure that the people you chose to leave them under their care, were the right people, with the right attitudes, with wisdom, with, 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 with clear thinking. And you'd probably want to do that more if you knew that your kids were moving into dangerous and even life-threatening environments. This is a situation that Peter is in. Peter gets to the end of his book, chapter 5, last chapter of his book, And Peter's about to talk to these exiles one last time to cap off all of the studies that we've been doing, all of the chapters so far. The situation that Peter is in is very interesting because Peter was given the charge of watching over the children of God by Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 21, Jesus is preparing to leave, to ascend to his Father, The church is just beginning to roll. 
Acts, the book that explains the beginnings of the church, hasn't even happened yet, but the church is beginning to be birthed, and God's children are going to become a part of this organization called the church, and they need somebody to watch over them. And so Jesus walks with Peter on the beach. After he raises from the dead, he dies on the cross, raises from the dead, he has one last conversation with Peter. And then he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1. Peter knows he's responsible for these kids. And he's very careful in his book that he writes to them as a dad, as a father, as a caregiver, making sure that they know some final things that he believes Jesus would want him to tell these these kids. Let me tell you about the conversation on the beach. When they had finished breakfast in John chapter 21, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, this is Peter now, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same question three times. So Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, church, what did Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. Are you getting the idea that this is a God, Jesus Christ, who is leaving his most beloved children in the care of Peter? And he wants to make sure Peter knows what's the most important thing. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, watch over my sheep. When Peter gets to Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, he believes very much that his end is near. Jesus has already told him, if you want to keep on reading in John chapter 21, Jesus actually tells Peter, you're actually going to die for this. We talked about this last week. And so Peter is making sure that these exiles know that he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 5, and all the way through the the book of 1 Peter, but in 1 Peter chapter 5, he knows that these children of God are scattered throughout a dangerous, precarious, questionable, hedonistic, idolatry-filled environment called Rome. He's very aware his responsible to God was to make sure that these kids of God, these children of God, are taken care of. He values them. He takes this responsibility serious. In 1 Peter 1.1, this is how he starts his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, he says, listen, I know you're scattered. And I know you feel like you don't fit in. And I know that persecution has already begun. And Peter, I believe, has given a, a view into the future where we know, looking now back in the past, the next 200 years after this book is written, Colosseums would be built and these Christians would be thrown to lions. Nero was already having dinner parties and impaling Christians, lighting them on fire so that they would light up the dark so that he could have his garden parties. These are Christians who are already going through persecution. And Peter, like a man who has been given the mantle of leadership, of ownership, of caregiver, is now writing these final verses to these exiles. And he wants to make sure that he knows what they're going through. He knows they feel alone. He knows they feel like they don't fit in. And he wants them to know he understands. 
In fact, at the end of 1 Peter 5 and verse 13, he's, with, with a final pen stroke, he writes, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. It's like at the end of the book, he says, listen, there's some other people that that you may not know about, but they're friends of yours. They're your brothers and sisters, and they live in Babylon too. Do you know what Babylon is? Babylon is a city in the Old Testament. It was a city that carried away the exiles, the, the Jewish people into captivity. Babylon was the, the, the ruling empire at the time of Daniel and Ezekiel. Babylon was named Babylon because it was a place of idolatry and, and pervasive uh, sexuality. It, it was a, it, it perverse uh, living in every extent of the imagination. In fact, Babylon was named after Babel. Do you know where Babel was? Babel is the first rebellious city of the Old Testament built by Nimrod, a rebel of God. In Genesis, way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, in verse 4, it says that Babylon was the first city that says to themselves, let's make a tower into the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Let us not do what God wants us to do. Let's not worship God any longer. Let's worship ourselves. And so they built this tower, and they were, they were patting themselves on the back at how independent they were because they knifed God in the back. Babylon was named after Babel. It was a place that symbolizes humanity's unified ambition to dethrone God and declare personal independence. When Peter's writing to these children that he's in charge of, he writes them and says, listen, you need to know there's other people living in Babylon. He was comparing Rome to Babel. He was comparing Rome to Babylon. I find that very interesting because living in Babylon brings pressure. And I think that's what he's trying to say to these folks. He's trying to say, especially when you live for Jesus Christ in Babylon, you're going to stick out. We've talked about this all the way through the last four chapters. Let me cap it off again. Don't give up on faith. It's the only thing you have to hang on to. When life doesn't make sense and pressure comes from the outside, hold on to your faith. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, this is the message. But it's interesting that he doesn't start 1 Peter 5 by talking to the people who are exiled. He talks to their caregivers. He talks to the people who are watching over the kids while Jesus is gone. And now Peter, while he's gone. So he writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 1, So I exhort, who church? I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. To all those who find themselves watching over the family of God in their journeys as exiles in Rome and the rest of the Babylons to come. If you feel like your culture looks a lot like Babylon, join the club. It's always been that way. Some Babylons are worse than others. Peter's taking his responsibility seriously. He says, I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I watch Jesus' life, his struggles. I watch people slander him. I watch more. I watch people turn against Jesus and his ministry. I watch popular support turn against him. I watch Jesus' own brothers and sisters turn their backs on him and alienate him for his ministry. I watch Judas betray him with a kiss. 
I watched how Jesus treated Judas and loved him back. I watched Jesus executed. I watched Jesus raised from the dead. I had lunch with Jesus on the beach after he rose from the dead. I watched Jesus ascend to heaven, and now I'm passing on my authority as an elder to the rest of the elders to come after me. Peter writes to all the parents who would be entrusted with the care of God's children. These are elders. And he writes to them and he says, Elders, leadership is held to a higher standard because you are watching over the children of God. Now, if you want to be an elder, that's your commission. The elders in this room already know this. Babylon will always bring an enormous amount of pressure against God's family in the church. Pressure is an incredible effect on us and it's an incredible effect on the church. And you should know this, it has an incredible effect on elders too. Elders are always tempted to give in to pressure. There's an external pressure, the pressure to compromise, the pressure to make deals with the devil, the pressure to do whatever's necessary in, 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 in an effort to keep the pews filled. The pressure to adapt, the pressure to compromise, the pressure to do what's reasonable so that you can, you can make do and stay alive. The pressure to do what all the other churches are doing because we're the only ones that seem to stick out on this one area. The, pressure, the, the external pressure on elders is, is always there, but there's also the internal pressure. The internal pressure is these men bear on their shoulders the responsibility of making sure this church grows up healthy. We have been given the commission by God to watch over his children. And so I'm talking to you elders here. This is our calling. We need to be reminded of this on a regular basis, that we're not playing a game here. This is life and death. And we need to grow up churches, this church, that sends out more leaders. Bless God for Mark and Joe joining the ranks, but there needs to be other people here, other young people, other, other older folks that start understanding where their gifts lie so that they can fill in the gaps that we need them to fill in in the future so that they can grow with us and they can grow their families and they can grow what God's doing in the kingdom of God around the world. Elders are responsible. People, Peter knew this, this pressure was this, this trust that God gave to us. Can you imagine... Walking, I mean, we read it like it's a past, but can you imagine if you were Peter and you saw Jesus after he was resurrected and you had just denied him three times? So you're, in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, I'm a total loser, right? Jesus shows up, and what would you be thinking about? Please, please forgive me, right? Would that not be the first thing on your mind? Please forgive me, all right? Jesus forgives him because that's what he does best. But then he takes you a walk on the beach And he says to you, Pat, I'm leaving you in charge of all of this. Not just of this church, but of all the churches that are to come. You're going to be in charge. How would you feel, Pat? (laughs) Yeah, a little overwhelmed, right? Peter is getting this commission from God. You are going to be in charge of my children. Watch them, feed them, tend them, love them. They're accountable. And they will watch over the souls of these children, these, this family of God, because they will have to give an account. John, Brent, and Craig, at this present time, will give an account to God for how we led this church. 
Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, work together, will you? When we teach and preach to these children of God, it is paramount to how this family of God grows. What we choose to preach, what we choose to teach, and what we choose to leave out. Being an elder of God for God's family is the most serious job in the entire world. In fact, this is why James 3 says, not many of you should choose to be teachers because you're going to be under more condemnation. This is why we're very careful when we choose elders based on qualification in God's word and not based on popularity. You may think a person should be an elder because they're just a popular person or they're smart or they seem to be wise, but there are deeper qualifications that you may not appreciate that are listed in Scripture, and the top of, the, the top of that is you've got to be humble. <laughs> if you're not humble, John, if you're not humble, you're not going to make it, brother. Brian, if you're not humble, you're not going to make it. You want to destroy a church fastest? Get the elders out. Discourage them. Beat them down. Better yet, pick an elder who's not qualified. Yeah. You'll ruin your church faster. Fastest than you ever thought possible. Want to destroy your own life fast? Sinfully choose the authority of an elder. Sinfully challenge the authority of an elder that God has chosen. So Peter says to them, shepherd the flock. Learn to be a servant first or you'll never shepherd others. In John 21, remember Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Is there any message of authoritarianism in that passage at all? If I'm told to go, all right, if you've got a bunch of sheep and you own the property and you own the sheep, would you consider it your responsibility to get those feet, sheep fed? Yes, would you feed them well? Yes, would you want to make sure that they are being fed well, right? Now, let's say you had a million sheep. Would you be able to feed all of those sheep? No. You would have to choose really trusted people to feed your sheep correctly. And can I tell you something? I've never done it before, but I think feeding a sheep would be the most humiliating experience in the world. <laughs> Have you seen sheep? We think of them like clean little bugs. They're not, right? They're, they're disgusting little smelly varmints. And, and your job is to feed the sheep. Feed them the right stuff. Watch for their needs. Make sure, and moving this into the spiritual realm, make sure that they're fed the right stuff. This is the, this is the job of every elder in the church. You wouldn't believe the amount of stuff that you could get fed in a church. It's the elder's responsibility to make sure you're tended for, you're cared for, you're loved, and you're fed the right stuff. Stand up to the pressure, elders. This is what Peter tells elders who follow him to do. And he says, listen, give it all for the family of God. You'll have external pressures, you'll have internal pressures, you will be involved in a church with a great diversity of personalities. Welcome them all. 
Feed them all. Nobody is beyond God's grace and nobody is beyond the love and the grace that this church can distribute. And you should know this will cost you a lot. (laughs) For Peter, it would cost him his life. This will cost you. So who would like to be an elder? (laughs) It's interesting. Elders don't rarely talk about elders because it sounds like we're patting ourselves on the back. But I'm telling you what, the more I talk about elders, the more I think I should be selling cars for a living. All right, now he goes on and he talks about exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Let me run through these. Not under compulsion. Every decision we make needs to be done because it is the decision that most glorifies God. If you're in our church, you should know elders do not make decisions that make you feel better. (laughs) That is like way down on our priority list. You should know that, all right? Elders make decisions that first and foremost at the top of the list glorify God. So if you don't like a decision that's made, you can let us know. But you need to know our priorities are not pleasing you because the person next to you is not going to like what you like, right? You like country? I can't stand it, all right? So we're going we're gonna to have differences of opinion, not just in music, but in a lot of different areas. It's the goal of the, of the elders to make sure that whatever we do is done to glorify God first. And so the, 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 we, what we do is not under compulsion, but willingly surrendered to the call. Not for shameful gain. This means that we don't get into this position of authority in the church for authority's sake, for recognition, for money, for getting our own way. If you have an elder that's in it for the money, if you have an elder that's in it for the position, if you have an elder that's in it for the authority, you're in the wrong church. Elders who do this need to repent immediately. The motivation of your heart can easily be seen in day-to-day living. So watch your elders and you'll be able to see. Because, not for shameful gain, the other side of that is you're to be doing your job, your ministry, eagerly, driven by the privilege of serving God's children. And finally, not domineering. Domineering is the act of using authority for political, social, spiritual gain to force a behavior to be done. But the alternative to that is that we are an example to the flock. We demonstrate the love of Jesus on a regular basis. There's an encouragement here to resist these because Jesus will reward faithful service. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you know why Jesus is called a shepherd here? Because elders feed the sheep and Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so while elders do their job of shepherding, we have a shepherd we must be responsible to as well. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now you should know, those of you that are younger does not mean those of you that are younger in age. It means those of you in the church who are not elders. Your job, if you're not an elder, is to be subject to the elders. This is simply a voluntary, this is not anything scary. This is simply the voluntary submission that Peter has been banging the drum about all the way through this book. You're to be subject to the authorities. You're to be subject to the king. You're to be subject to one another. And you are to be subject to the elders in the church. 
a voluntary subjection Peter has been already telling us about, now applies in the church as well. You might be tempted to say, yeah, if I had a better elder, I'd be a better person. <laughs> yeah. Go with that. <laughs> it's like saying, if my, if my parents were better, I'd be a better person. That might carry you for a little while. But eventually you've got to grow up and say, I am who I am, and that's all that I am. You're not Popeye, but you've got to make the decision to be who you are, who God has created you to be. I don't get to heaven and say I was a bad husband because Mark was a bad husband, even though Mark isn't. That doesn't hold water. Peter goes on to this next thought because... He says, for this to work, there must be a voluntary placement of each member in the church. Be subject to the elders, clothing yourself with humility. And if you don't do this, you should know that God opposes the proud. Can you imagine? Do you understand what that means? God opposes the proud? That means if you're proud, God considers it his responsibility to oppose you. This isn't just God would prefer you to be humble. This is if you're a proud person, God will make it his goal to go against you. God opposes the proud. But the alternative is he gives grace to the humble. So be obedient and submissive as a part of God's family. This takes me back to Hebrews thirteen seventeen, where it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with what, church? With joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Now you might say, well, Craig, what if my elders are leading poorly? There's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff in Scripture that speaks to, to this, you should know. But first and foremost, you need to understand, your elder is first not your elder, he's your brother. So go and talk to him for God's sake. If you, if you have a problem with anybody in the church, including your elder, but you feel like you can't talk to them, the problem ain't with them, it's with you. Your, your elder is first your brother. And you may look at me and say, well, Craig, you're way up there. You're, I'm really not. That's why I do communion down here every week. I'm trying to illustrate to you that we're all on the same ground. I'll make mistakes. I've made at least one today. You make mistakes. But together we serve the Lord. And when we're humble, it becomes a lot more fun. If you follow the process and treat, a bro- treat me as a brother first, or John or Brent as a brother first, Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5 gives you exact uh, a process that you can go through to talk with us and make sure that things are right, just like you would with one another in the church. Well, Craig, what if there's an accusation against an elder? Process for that too. In Scripture, you can look at this in, in uh, uh, 1 Timothy 5. It says that there must be two to three witnesses of the infraction, and if there's not two to three witnesses of the, uh, of the infraction against an elder, then there's no accusation. The elder is not allowed to receive an accusation. Why? Because Satan loves to tear down good men. Do you know the top reason why elders leave churches? Do you know why the top reason why pastors leave churches? Discouragement. Did you know that? It is the top reason. The average pastor would say, This discouragement, if it comes from two to three people, is enough for me to consider leaving. Isn't that crazy? Satan loves to tear down good men. And so there's processes to follow to make sure that if there's there's sin in in the life of an elder, there's processes that we go through. 
well, Craig, what if the biblical processes don't work? What if I went to them, they, they don't listen to me? What if I went to the other elders and took two to three with me, like we did in, in, first, uh, in Matthew chapter 18? What if, uh, what, if, uh, what if there are two to three witnesses that, that saw whatever happened, and, and there's, there's proof of this, uh, but they still don't acknowledge it? What do I do then? You leave. You leave. That is your only option. <laughs> I find, it, I find it humorous, the amount of people that, that think that, no, 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 that's when the pitchforks and the, the lanterns come out and we storm the castle. You, you see, because what's happening is not so much the elder is bad and everybody needs to know it. What's happening is Satan's about tearing down churches. The church is the only hope of the world today. And if he can get a church to bicker and fight and argue and take down leadership... And another one's gone. And another one's gone. Another one bites the dust. So I take you back to the key to all of this in verse 6. What are the first two words, church? This is the key. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Many anxieties arise from serving God in this hostile culture. This culture does not bow to the exclusive claims of the gospel. And if you do stand up for the exclusive claims of the gospel, you lose friendships, you lose status, you might lose your job. You might lose respect. Peter lost his life. But that does not negate the responsibility of watching over the church properly. We are the family of God, church. We are the light of this world. Peter is saying, well, we reflect the light that God gives us to become the light of this world. So God lights us up. God is at work always. I also find it interesting, the mighty hand of God, this is the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament. Peter is saying this, remember, trials come from God. Sometimes it feels like a mighty hand. A mighty hand of God that's pressing down on you. But remember, trials come from God. Bring them, welcome them, work through them, learn what you need to do and get on the other side. The goal of trials is not to get through them. The goal of trials is to figure out what God wants to teach you in them. But if you go through a trial badly, especially when it comes to how we behave in the church, if you go through a trial badly, you need to understand trials can quickly turn to temptation. And God don't tempt no one. You know where temptation comes from? Your trial will be turned into an evil activity. A trial that can cause you to grow in your faith. Satan can turn around and turn it against you, easily taking a trial meant for your growth and turning into a failure that defines you. That's why in verse 8 he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody he can play with for a little while. True or false? Seeking someone to what? He doesn't want to play with you. He wants to eat you alive. He wants to eat your marriage. He wants to eat your friendships. He wants to eat your testimony. He wants to eat your church. And he is ruthless. Be sober-minded when you're in the middle of the onslaught. Approach things with a humble heart. 
Say no to the pride. Approach things with a humble heart. Be clear-minded and alert so that you do not sin. Stand ready to resist the devil's attempts to use God's trials to turn into a temptation that will pressure you and crush you. Peter's reminding all these exiles that pressure can cause us to react wrongly. When the pressure comes, instead of bringing growth to our lives and causing us to depend on faith more, it can cause us to crush like a balloon. We can retaliate in the most proud ways. It comes very easy to us. The human urge to resist defending yourself is very strong. Remember, trials come from God. We've said this all along. I've got to tell you again. Pressure is not apart from God's will. 1 Peter 3.17. Pressure should not take us by surprise. 1 Peter 4.12. Pressure is God's way of purifying our faith. 1 Peter 1.7. 1 Peter 4.17-19. Pressure is meant to, in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ. But it can be easily translated, easily manipulated by the devil and turned into something evil. So be sober-minded about the pressure you face. 1 Peter 1.13, this is how he started the book. Therefore, Peter says, to all of these children he's been entrusted to, to watch over, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He starts the book like he ends the book. He says, listen, think clearly about things. You may feel pressure like you've never known it before, but think clearly about it and realize through it, God is making you into somebody stronger. Don't let devil take over because he can make you into something that's destroyed. Realize the truth of pressure. Think clearly about the pressure in your life. Make sober choices. Don't blame other people. Don't blame your past. Walk through it and ask God to teach you what he needs to teach you through it. Pressure just reveals my weakest points. When something is crushed, the first thing that goes is where that thing is the weakest. And when pressure comes to my life, the thing that goes first is my weakest area. Surrender that to God. Be humble. Own up to it. This is sober thinking. You have an enemy that will use everything he can against you. (laughs) Relentlessly. He'll use, he'll use culture against you. He'll use your job against you. He'll use friends against you. He'll use girlfriends and boyfriends against you. He'll use wives and spouses and husbands and moms and dads. He'll even use your little kids, your wonderful little children, as little missiles of the devil in your life so that they're going to shot at you so that you, you fall apart, your, your faith falls apart. The devil, listen, he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's pacing, he's looking, he's pacing, he's looking like at a zoo. We went to the zoo once and I saw the lion on the other side of the glass and the glass was like six feet thick. And it was wonderful because I could barely see the lion. It was like this beveled glass. I was going, I think there's a lion, there's a lion. And he's pacing back and forth. And so I'm going, ah, making faces at him, pounding on the glass. I'm tempting him, I'm taunting him because I got this six foot glass between me and he's just pacing back and forth. And I know the whole time he's looking, is there a crack in here? Because if there's a crack in here, I'm taking that Canadian out. And he's just walking back and forth, watching for the crack. And if there was a crack in there, he'd pound against that glass until it shattered because his goal was not to be taunted. His goal was not to be taken advantage of. His goal was one thing and one thing only, and that is his next meal on the other side of the six-foot glass. And that was me. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The best trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. 
But he's pacing back and forth. He's watching for our weaknesses. And when he finds a weakness, he will exploit that until he destroys you. He destroys your life. He destroys your family. He destroys your faith. He's, his goal is destroy everything about you. And by the way, you are compared to a sheep. He is compared to a lion. Who wins that fight? Sheep don't attack lions. lions. And what happens if a lion walks in the middle of a million sheep and roars? What happens to the sheep? Boom, they scatter. There's a reason Peter chose this illustration. It's to help us understand that the devil is our enemy. So be sober-minded about this. You may be fighting with somebody in your life. You may be at war with somebody in your life. You may not like somebody that's sitting around you. You may not like somebody they have to go home to. But be sober-minded about this because that trial may be turning into temptation. The devil is looking for a way to take you out. And he'll take you out first by taking away your love for those people. That's how he'll do it first. Because if there's a group of people he can get you to not love, he can add to that group just more and more and more and more. Be sober-minded about this. Be humble. The lion is looking to devour not just weak Christians, but elders and churches. His goal is to destroy us all. Listen, Revelation 20 was written 20, Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and 3 was written 20 years after 1 Peter. These churches that were all written to, Thessalonica, Ephesus, these churches that were making a dent for the kingdom of God, 20 years later, God talks to these same churches and says, you know what? I'd rather you weren't even around. I don't like you. You're all being persecuted. There's all kinds of pressure. Read Revelation 1, 2, and 3. All kinds of pressure against you. But you know what it's bringing out? It's bringing out your worst. So what you need to do is repent. What you need to do is is realize, be sober-minded come back to what you did before. The world's only hope is a church. It must be a strong, love-filled, humble church. It must have strong, love-filled, humble leaders. And it must have strong, love-filled, humble people connected to it and committed to it. That's the bottom line. Resist him, verse 9. Resist him by being firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. You're not alone. This happens in every church. And while I am very proud of Village Church East, and I love the unity we have here, I am very aware that on the other side of the glass, there's a lion pacing back and forth, waiting for a crack. So what? Lean into pressure. Examine yourself in it. Verse 10 says, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Jesus Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that. To him be dominion forever and ever. God uses pressure to expose us. God uses pressure to humble us. God uses pressure to show himself powerful to us. And God uses pressure to draw us to Jesus. Pressure exposes everyone. So when a believer faces pressure, think this. What does God want this pressure to accomplish in me? Did I write that up there? No. All right, I'll say it one more time. As a believer, think, what does God want this pressure to accomplish in me? Number two, elders, shepherd like Jesus. Don't give in to to, to pressure. 
Elders should not draw back from shepherding the church of God for any reason. It is God's will that we lead these children of God well. Feed them well. Protect them. Watch over them. Regarding elders, be sober-minded. One day I won't be an elder anymore. One day you might be. Elders, teach and clarify. Teach the truth. And finally, number three, church body, submit like Jesus. All this pressure and how we deal with it is always in the church. We are family, and here's where peace should, should foam up the best. The church is meant to fight pressure with love. Do you know how Peter finishes off this letter? This is the final thing that he writes. Look at this verse. This is verse 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, normally, I would just read over that and go, all right, now on to the next thing. But if you read that very carefully, you might see that it says, greet one another with the kiss of love. I find it interesting that in our church, we hug. We don't kiss, all right? And don't nobody start that, all right? <laughs> I'll bend a little bit so that I can get a hug, but I'm not going the other way on this. Their kiss in that culture is our hug today. If you don't like somebody, if you don't get along with somebody, don't you make it your goal just not to get too near them at all? The hardest thing in the world would be to hug your enemy. And in the church of Jesus Christ, the command that we're given, translate kiss of love to hug of love, is greet one another with the hug of love. In other words, you may not even feel like it, but the best place to start, if you have a challenge with somebody else, is to force yourself to hug them. I think about Jesus Christ, and I think about his last days on the earth, and I think about his last supper. Do you remember his last supper? Do you remember who was at that supper? all his loser disciples who are going to abandon him in a couple of hours, and one very interesting character named Judas. Judas attended his last supper. Judas was welcomed as a friend. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Now, nobody washes each other's feet. That is like the most demeaning. You hire somebody to wash feet in Jesus' day. And you don't hire a Jew, you hire a Gentile. Because not even Jews would bow down to wash somebody's filthy feet. You hired the help to do that. Jesus looks at the situation and thinks to himself, I'm going to give these guys a demonstration of what humility looks like. He takes off his cloak, wraps it around his waist, and one by one by one, he washes the disciples' feet. And then he comes to Judas' feet. And I got to think somewhere in his human mind, he's thinking to himself, I don't want to do this guy. But he bent down and he washed his feet, and we know that he did, because as soon as he was done washing his feet, he looked up at Judas and he says, and he feeds him, and he feeds them. Remember, he dips the morsel, he dips the bread in the, in the cup, and he gives it to Judas, and as soon as he does that, he leans over to Judas and he says, what you're going to do, you and I both know what you're about to do. What you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas left, nobody knew what he was doing but Judas and Jesus, and that night, Jesus washed his feet and fed him. So church, I'm here to tell you the antidote to all of this, if you're struggling with any of this, is to be humble. 
to force yourself to hug somebody you may not like a whole lot, to submit to one another like Jesus Christ. And then he finishes by saying, peace to you who are in Christ. Now, if you don't belong to Jesus Christ, some of this might just seem doggone foolishness to you. It probably is. But for those of us that know Christ as our Savior, we recognize who we were when Jesus came and showed his love to us. And so we want to be that for one another. Supernatural peace is only available to those who are under pressure who are in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. So church, let's be God's children. Elders, let's be good caregivers. And church, let's be a light in the dark. Sound good? Lord, I'm grateful for our time we had here today. I'm grateful for this passage of Scripture. It's got some tentacles to it that run deep into our hearts because it's it's hard for us. It's hard for us to fight against the pride sometimes that wants to defend ourselves and demand our own ways. And yet we read verses like this and it clearly says that you oppose the proud but you give grace to the humble. And so Father, let our church be filled with humble people. People who realize they may not get their own way this, this day or that day but people who realize that it's our goal not to get our own way but to glorify you. So teach us, Father, how to do that best. And may we make a dent in this culture. May we make a dent in our generation. May they know we are Christians by our love. And may you keep the evil one on the other side of the glass. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.